Well, we're going to open Hebrews 11, and actually the next four weeks, we're going to spend on, this is considered one of, I mean, if you could take a poll and ask people their favorite chapter in the Bible, uh, Hebrews 11 would land on, on many people's list of favorite chapters in the Bible. And so we're going to be taking four weeks on this. I'm going to read Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 7. So you can uh, turn on your Bible there on your uh, phone or uh, open, and also it will be on the screens as well. Hebrews 11, 1 through 7, says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it our ancestors won God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is God's word to us today. And I can't wait to, to talk to you about it. Um, this opening verse is a paradox. He says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. That's interesting because faith, he says, it's the, this, this, you know, some of you have different translations. Maybe it's the, the reality, it's the certainty. It's a word that just means the foundation of everything. Faith is the foundation of hope. Any optimism you might have in your life, the basis of it is faith as a Christian. And then he goes on, he says, and faith is the proof of what is not seen. That to me sounds like the definition of contradiction. You can't prove what you can't see. Some of us have, have heard accusations of Christians and the Bible as anti-science. That seems like the definition of anti-science. The proof of what you can't see or verify with your five senses or even reason itself, they would say. I want to take you to the first maybe two minutes of my Old Testament class with Professor Hector Avalos. He actually passed away um, this past year. Uh, Hector and I became pretty good friends. I went over to his house. We uh, got to know each other, and we actually filmed a video of him telling his testimony of how he went from Christianity to atheism. It's got a lot of views on, on YouTube. And we were in Old Testament class, and I was probably a junior in college sitting there, and he says, 
We're going to start our class with two words. Empirico rationalism. Now, I won't go into detail about this, but he explained it. He said, as a child, I believed in Santa Claus. And if you would ask me as a child, okay, prove Santa is real. He would say, well, he has reindeer. That's how I can prove it. And you say, well, prove that Santa has reindeer. And you say, well, I saw it on TV. He said, now, Christian, how is your belief in God any different? You believe in God, prove it. Well, the Bible tells me so. What's different of the child that saw it on TV? Like, how can you verify this? So you can't. And that's why in this class, we believe in science and rational thought as the basis of our study. With that, let's open to Genesis chapter one. That was the basis of our study through the Bible. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Faith is being 100% convinced that things we are unable to see are real. That's faith. The proof of things that are not seen. And he says in verse two, for by this, our ancestors were approved. Now I want to invite you into the tension of this because this is a problem in our materialistic world. Materialism as in like the philosophical way of believing that all there is in this world is the material things, right? There's no supernatural. There's no miracles. There's no God, just the materials itself. The belief in science is the ultimate truth and reality. It really confronts this. He says, this is the way our ancestors were approved. They believed things that they couldn't see. Seven times throughout this, he uses this word approval, 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 or this is how we please God is through faith. Everyone who has ever had God's approval had one thing in common, faith. I have an aunt who gives relationship advice to people, and it's pretty simple. She says, find out what the other person hates and don't do it. That's pretty simple, right? But I think the opposite would be maybe more true or better advice, like find out what pleases them and do it. Wouldn't that be better advice? Uh, well, how would you please God? You want to start a relationship with God. How do you go about pleasing him? I mean, there's a lot of things you know he probably hates and you can try to not kill someone or lust or do those types of things. But how would you go about pleasing God? Well, it says right here, it says faith. This is how our ancestors, the, the forefathers of the faith were approved by God. This, if we think about why faith, faith is the only human expression of complete dependence on someone else or something else, right? So 
He says, the first unseen thing we believe by faith, verse three, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Time and space and humans and animals and the physical laws of the universe, light, everything you see made by the word of God. Genesis 1.1, opening words of scripture says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse three, God said, let there be light and there was light. One of the most fundamental page one, first verse of the Bible is saying that with his word, God created everything that you see out of nothing, ex nihilo. He just spoke it into existence. 21 times through this chapter, he's going to say, by faith, by faith. And he's going to give us many examples. But the number one thing we as Christians believe by faith is that God spoke the world into existence. These things were not made from what is visible. That's a hugely important statement. Some of you, we have a ton of scientists in this church, right? We're in a, an academic town with the university and a ton of you spend time in labs. Um, I was talking to one of our uh, molecular biologists, I think that's what you'd call him, Matt Potoff this week. And we were talking about this and I, I called him just like phone a friend on this stuff. And I said, as a, as a scientist, like, like you lead a lab on the university campus, like no one's more of a scientist than you are, but how do you interact with this as a believer? And we were talking and, and one of the things he mentioned, he, he's like, you know, in physics, there's the law of conservation of mass that matter cannot be created or destroyed. Something from nothing is still one of the most fundamental problems in science, right? Something from nothing, and this is, this is a problem. How do you get something from nothing? And we, we can talk about, I've heard uh, scientists talk about the survival of the fittest, but they're like, in biology, there's the problem of the arrival of the fittest. Like, how did they get there, right? The origins of creation. Well, Romans 1.20 says, for God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. What's an example of an invisible quality of God that is clearly seen by everybody? Can you think of any examples of this? Think about this. Um, so at the same time I was taking this Old Testament class, I uh, studied philosophy and religion in, in uh, just enough to be very dangerous. Um, so in our philosophy religion class, um, the last day we went through this whole, all the classical arguments for and against uh, the existence of God. And on the last day of class, my professor, Doc Edie Klemke, he's also um, passed away now, but he handed around these pictures. 
and it was pictures of human suffering. And he asked the question, how can you believe in a God who allows this? But there's another way to look at those pictures. Because it's like our conversation we had after class was, wait, if there's no God, and I see this picture of a starving child, what's the problem? Where's the problem here, right? Like how does science explain that this is even a problem? You know, we believe that faith is being sure that we were created in the image of God. And so that's why this picture is a problem, right? Because we were created by God. That is an image bearer. That, that child bears the image of God. That child has a soul. And I said, Doc, like, if the house is on fire and you run in and you have the chance to save the baby or the dog, which do you do? What do you do? If you come out with the dog, it's like, what? <laughs> you, you broke some moral law, right? We would say that's, that's like a terrible, immoral act, right? We know intuitively there is such a thing as justice. That's why we long for justice. But can you scientifically prove justice? Yet everybody wants justice. We all want it, but we've never seen it and we can't verify it, but we're still pursuing it, right? Because God's invisible qualities are clearly seen. What about love? If I come to you, say you're married, you've been married a long time, and I come to you and I say, does your spouse love you? And you're like, absolutely. And I say, scientifically prove that to me. You, you can't, right? Those are examples of God's invisible qualities that are clearly seen. All of us believe in justice and things like love and of course, we are certain of other things we can't see, um, our own ideas, our memories, cognition. Uh, science doesn't know what to do with that, explaining an idea or a memory. How do you do that? Those are examples. There are way smarter people in our church, people like Matt, that if you have questions on this, we're not going to get all your questions answered. But there are people that would love to interact with you because a lot of us struggle with doubt. Um, so it's okay to, to ask questions about that. But he says, by faith, we, we believe in the creation. That's like faith 101 right there. But then he gives three examples of trust in action. Verse four, look at, he talks about this guy, Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Old Testament, some of you are brand new to the Bible. Here's a challenge for you. Read Hebrews 11 this week and try to go back to the Old Testament and read those stories and, and see what they're all about. Well, this, 
this story about Cain and Abel. So after the fall in the Garden of Eden, remember that? They eat the fruit. They're banished from the garden. Eve has two children, Cain and Abel. Cain was a gardener. Abel was a shepherd. And so they both brought their sacrifices to God. Cain brought fruit from his garden. Abel brought some fat from the sheep. Now, the problem here is that God accepted Abel's offering, but did not accept Cain's. And so Cain got angry with God. Now, here's the question. Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Was he like, you know, it's, it's the fat I like better than the vegetables? Uh, no. We see, if you go back to Genesis 4, that the problem wasn't that God liked animals better than grain sacrifices or whatever it was. The issue was that Cain had an evil heart. He got so mad at Abel, he murdered him. One of the first righteous men of faith, Abel, in the Bible, was killed. That's a glorious intro to the life of faith, right? The first person out of the gate he uses is somebody who had faith and was essentially killed for their faith. There's more where this came as we go through Hebrews 11. But here's the thing. Externally, this is what's so interesting about Think about this. Externally, Cain did what he was supposed to do, right? Don't you find that weird? God had probably, they knew that they were to offer sacrifices to God. Maybe bring a tithe, maybe give their money, give part of their fruit or whatever. Cain did what he was supposed to, and God gave him the stiff arm. What do we learn from this story with Abel and Cain? Here's the lesson I want us to think about. Faith is not religious routines. It's a heart after God. Faith is not religious routines. It's a heart after God. Proverbs 16.8, or I think it's 15.8, sorry, it's, it'll be up on the screen. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Isn't that interesting? You can externally do what God commands. The sacrifice which God commanded you can go through the motions of bringing the sacrifice and Proverbs 15 says, yeah, and it's an abomination to God. Why? Because it's brought with an evil heart. I'm going through the motions of religion, but in my soul, my heart is not after God. That's a lesson we can learn here. We can, it's possible to go to church every single week and have an evil heart. And one of the things we don't want you to get good at here at Veritas, we don't ever want you to get good at church. You know what I mean? Like you come in and you kind of know the routine, go through the motions, leave 
we want you to come and bring your heart to the Lord and encounter him through faith. Does God have your heart? Not are you externally doing all the right things, but does God have your heart? That's what we learned from the Cain and Abel story. Look at verse five. The second example he gives about faith in action is Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away and so he did not experience death. He was not found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, this is weird, but there's a guy in the Bible who didn't die. That's, I'm, even Jesus died. He came back to life. There are a couple of guys, actually two of them. Uh, Enoch was one that never died. That's weird. I can't explain it. I'm not even going to try to. God just took him to heaven. And Hebrews 11 says it's because he was a man of faith. He pleased God. So he was like, I'm, I'm taking him. It's a great way to go. But don't miss this in verse 6. And this is going to be one of the more important verses in, in this chapter. Now, I have this verse memorized because I have heard Pastor Jeff quote this over and over for years and years, decades. I've heard him say this. So here's, here's Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Jeff always adds the earnestly, and it's not there. So I don't know. Maybe he's misquoting it. But here's the thing, you guys. There is one way to please God. One way to please God, it's faith. And he's saying, of course, you're going to believe that he exists. That's, remember, verse, verse 3. But of course, it's more than that. It's believing that he rewards those who seek him. Faith involves seeking. So what's an example of something that people seek? What about for you? What's something in your life that you are seeking right now? Now, here's the question. Why do you or anyone seek after something. The reason you seek is because you think it will be worth it if I get that thing, right? So and in our history, back in 1849, you're gonna, some of you guys are going to watch the 49ers. Well, you know where they got their name, right? The 49ers, the gold rush. There's gold. So what did people do? Sold everything, got their Conestoga wagon, hitched up the horses, mules, whatever. And they took off for California, right? Because they were seeking gold. And they thought that it would be worth it to do that. Now, we do that all the time. We seek things because we think it's going to be worth it. The lesson from Enoch is that faith makes you a relentless seeker. Faith, if you have faith, one of the ways you will know you have faith is that you will be a relentless seeker. And I use that word relentless because uh, the definition of a relentless is oppressively constant, harsh, 
inflexible. Some of the greatest people on earth that we know through history would be described as relentless. There's a cause. Martin Luther King Day. We look back at a man who was relentless. Unstoppable in their seeking of something. Maybe it's an athlete or an actor or an inventor or a political figure. These people are seeking something. They're hungry for something. They're orienting their lives around something. So the question here as we think about Enoch is what evidence is there in your life that you are relentlessly seeking first the kingdom of God? I'm from Omaha originally. If I could, you could transport me back to 1800s and I see one of those wagons rolling through town, you know, going, going down Interstate 80, blazing their trail out west. And I see them and I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, we are seeking gold. And I say, prove it. And they say, oh yeah, well, we lost a child back there to death. We got stuck in the rivers. We sold everything. Here we are, like, prove it. What do you mean? Like our whole life proves that we are on a mission. We have oriented our lives around getting that gold. What about you as it relates to the kingdom of God, that treasure that that person Jesus told the parable, the pearl of great price, they sold everything to buy the field. What evidence is there in your life? Like, are you a person of faith? And you can point to a bunch of things in your life, like the Conestoga wagon and all those things like, oh yeah, my whole life is oriented around the fact that this world is not all there is. You're like Enoch. That's a life of faith. And the final example we get of the life of faith in action is Noah. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. God told Noah that a flood was coming. A flood that was going to devastate the entire earth. And so what did Noah start doing? He started building this big old ark. This ark would be about one and a half time, one and a half football fields long, about four stories high. And he's building this ark. And here's what's hilarious, you guys. It had probably never rained before. And here he is building this massive boat. And I can just imagine Noah's neighbors. You're telling us judgment is coming? It's going to start raining? What is a boat? What does this thing even do? 
And so they began to mock him. Oh, you think you're better than us, right? You think you're holier than us. Here's what we see here, that Noah's holy life was a threat to the people around him. I think every Christian should have many Noah moments in their life. Your life as a Christian should not make sense to unbelievers. Isn't it weird that we are people who believe in this invisible God? How's that different from Santa Claus or the tooth fairy, right? This is the question I'm getting in Old Testament class. So let's get this straight. You believe in a God you cannot see, and okay, God also then came to a, a peasant teenager in the first century, you're saying. Okay, so then he grew up and then he died on the cross. So God then died on a cross for our sins, which you can't prove anyway. Sin, what's sin? He died on the cross for sin. Oh, and then you're going to say he was raised from the dead. And it gets worse. Because now you're going to say that he's going to come back. And Revelation 19 says he's going to come on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's so ridiculous. And some of you are like, you know, not to mention the whole male and female thing. Like, we know that's not a thing anymore, right? You're like, oh, there's way more offensive things that we believe than that, right? As Christians, we believe a lot of stuff. Why do we believe it? We believe it because we are people of faith. We are like Noah. God spoke something to us and we believed it. Sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel with people, I've shared this Jesus story maybe thousands of times. And I've had the opportunity to lead many people to Jesus. And every time when I get to the end of explaining the gospel, how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and somebody says, I want to do that. I'm always like, you do? Are you sure? Are you sure about that? And they're like, totally. I want that. Why? Because they're believing by faith in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, for salvation. The lesson from Noah is something like this. Faith will get you mocked and saved. Faith will get you mocked and saved. God told Noah that judgment was coming. And so what did Noah do? He believed God and he got to work. He trusted the word of God and he obeyed the word of God. That's about the whole of the Christian life right there. Sometimes we overcomplicate things. We're like, it's just so complicated. I don't know. It's actually super simple. Like God speaks through his word 
And all we have to do is just read it, believe it, and then start building our ark. The obedience part, of course. Hopefully you're not building an ark. God gave us a rainbow uh, to, to show us that's never gonna happen again. But he's saying, we now run into the cross. That's our ark, as it were, trusting in Jesus and getting mocked along the way. And that's us, Christians on this world, believing by faith, getting mocked, believing that there's a judgment to come, but trusting the finished work of Jesus. So the first man of faith, Abel, was killed. Noah was mocked. There's going to be more stories of this, but here's what it comes down to. Faith is transferring your trust to Jesus Christ. I'm going to end with a little, um, a little exercise, a little example. And what I need right now is I need some volunteers, okay? Um, and I need some people that I really trust, some people I really trust. And I, I'm just going to go like someone toward the front. Um, Danny, can I, you think I can trust you guys? I know I can trust you. I don't know these guys as well. Can, can we do it? Can you guys come up? All right. You guys come up here. Um, so, so we got Danny and, and his crew. And dude, we're going to need you. We need at least four because we're going to do a trust fall. Okay. You guys are facing each other and face each other. Uh, okay. Make, hold your hands together. You guys, you guys know how this works, right? The trust fall. Anyone who's ever been to any like youth camp or team building activity, like this is one of the oldest things there is. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to, you, you, with the trust fall, you have to turn around. Okay. Now, and you have to fall backwards. Now, here's the thing. Like I trust these guys because I trust Danny. I know him super well. Like his parents, there are few people on planet earth I trust more than Danny's parents. Therefore, I also trust Danny. Great family. And he told me I could trust these guys. Um, I should probably bring up Dermody just in case. But, uh, but anyway, so I'm going to turn around and, and um, but wait, here's the thing. I can't look at them when I'm falling, right? That's the whole trust thing. Like I, I have to close my eyes and I have to fall back. And that's a little scary because um, I need to scientifically verify that I can trust these guys, right? So how could I do that? Let's see. So if I'm looking this way, um, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I am not going to do the trust fall. Here's an example, you guys. This is an example of faith and how it works. I can look at these guys and intellectually, I can know that they will catch me if I fall. But that's not what faith is. Is this faith looking at these guys and saying, oh, they could totally catch me? Is that faith? No, that's not faith. And yet that's what we do, some of us, every single week with God. We show up to church and we're like, oh yeah, totally. The cross, he could totally save me. You guys can sit down, thank you. I'm definitely not doing the trust. Are you guys disappointed? Wait, get back up here. They want to see some faith. You guys want to, all right, come on. Dude, I totally was not going to fall. You bet, hey, I was not going to fall. You better catch me. I'm closing my eyes. You ready? 
Are you sure? You gotcha. yeah, all right. You, you guys think they'll catch me? All right. Here we go. All right. One, two, three. Here we go. Okay. All right. Awesome. Well done, all around, everyone. All right. We've lost control. I wasn't going to do that, but that was actually very easy. It was not as scary as you would have thought. So. Here's the thing. As we close in prayer, you guys, so many of us feel like that's where we're at with God. We are going through something in our life right now that is straight up scary. And what we're going to see over the next four weeks is that Jesus Christ is saying, I love you with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. You can trust me. Let's pray together. I just want to ask, what are you going through right now? What's the scary thing in your life right now? As we close, I just want you to have a moment, an opportunity here to just take that thing to Jesus and just Say, Jesus, I, I trust you with this. Just invite you to fall into Christ. We can see that, yeah, he, he will save us, but we actually have to trust him. Jesus, even right now, speak to us. Catch us. Show us that you love us as we declare our faith in Jesus Christ.